Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Trunk, reading the stories that didn't make it. I'm Hilary B. Bisniecks. Welcome to another Shelter in Place episode, folks. This month I thought that I'd do a Q&A episode, kinda inspired by Be the Serpent, who does these every ten episodes. So I solicited questions from Twitter and from the show's Patreon and got some really great responses. So let's dive right in. First off, Miri Baker asks, How old were you when you can first remember truly trunking a story? I was probably 20 when I first really trunked a story. At that point, I had been basically shopping around the same story for about two years, uh, and this is back in 2005, 6, 7, somewhere in there, so uh, electronic submissions weren't really a thing, and, you know, it would be a very long turnaround to get the story rejection back, and then I would spend a bunch of time agonizing over rewriting it, and then I would send it back to the same market that had just rejected it? I, I was 20 years old, you must understand, and, like, there was no social media, there was nobody really to tell me that that wasn't a thing you should do, because as I've mentioned on this show before, the first rejection I got was a rewrite request. So I just sort of had decided that any time I got a rejection back, like, oh, it was just so close and I can do better and, and you know, I'm just going to try them again, which was time-consuming. Uh, and when I left for college, I just sort of set submissions aside for a little while. I got variations on this question from Joe Lazinski, D.H. Dunn, and R.K. Duncan, uh, who all wanted to know about my guest booking process, uh, how far in advance I book guests, and how that process has changed in the time that I've been doing this show. I have a spreadsheet. I have a spreadsheet that I use to track everything about every episode from the time I decide that I want a person as a guest someday in the future, all the way through to when I actually get that episode posted. And so when I was first starting this podcast, I just put a bunch of names on the spreadsheet, and it was a lot of people I knew, and then a bunch of just, like, wild wish list authors, where it was like, oh, wouldn't it be super cool, you know, to have, like, Yunha Lee... And, like, you know, maybe someday in the future I can make that happen. But at the beginning, it was really just, you know, going through and asking my friends who I thought would be game. And a lot of times asking friends who I knew had a book coming out. Um, and that's still a lot of how I do my booking, is looking through who do I know who has a book coming out for this month and then ask them if they're interested in being on the show. I still tend to pitch it as kind of a publicity option, uh, but also I'm legitimately inviting on people who I want to 
hear from them. I think that they would be fun to have on the podcast and whose voices I really want to lift up. How far in advance has changed kind of dramatically since I started the show. It used to be that I was booking guests maybe three months in advance of when they would be on. And then as I started like moving the show forward and, and like picking up some steam, I started being able to book people farther out. And at this point, I've already started booking people for next season. Uh, I have a couple of slots in the spring of 2021 that I've already booked. Uh, and that's just come a lot from how uh, the reach of this show has expanded and from the social circles that I've been in just being able to ask people and to just sort of put out there among my friends like, hey, does anybody have a project that's coming out that they would love to plug, that they would like to come on this show to plug it, and that they would like to come on the show just period? Uh, so it's a lot of asking around. It's a lot of talking to my friends. And then sometimes it's referrals from friends. Several of my recent guests have been people who I didn't know prior to reaching out to them to be on the show. Specifically, Katie Wagers and Caitlin Starling both were recommendations, I think both from Valerie Valdez, who came to me and said, you know, hey, I think these people would be great on your show, and I, you know, I'd like to be able to reach out to them and, and offer, would that be something you'd be interested in? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. And, and sometimes it's leaning on my network to try to get people who I don't have an immediate connection to, but who I have a degree of separation from. So it's, you know, it's, it's a lot of, it's a lot of my community. It's a lot of, you know, the people who I know, and it, it feels kind of gross to say that it's like networking stuff, but it really is. It's knowing who to talk to, and just at some point being unafraid and just saying, you know what, there's no way that I can get this person on the show without asking, and so I'm just going to go out and ask. Uh, it, it's, you know, it's just like sending out stories. You shouldn't self-reject. I say that at the end of every episode, and I'd better live by it. This is another question from R.K. Duncan, who wanted to know how long I was planning the show in particular before I launched. Three months. Honestly, three months. At the beginning of 2019, I was thinking, oh, wouldn't it be cool... I, I had a different concept for the show initially. My initial concept for the show was getting authors to come on and read their embarrassing juvenilia. And luckily, I had friends who said to me, you're going to have a real hard time making that happen as an unknown. You know, if you were a big name, if you were established already, 
it might be easier to do that, but for the person who you are, it's unlikely that you're going to be able to get people on the show. And the people who I asked initially to be on the show all said, like, you know, I'm not really interested in doing that. But Sarah Gailey said, what if instead of juvenilia, you had people come on and read stuff from their trunk? And I was like, oh, you know, yeah, that makes that makes sense. And just sort of planned it from there. And I'd been kicking around. I'd been thinking about the idea of this podcast where people came on to read their juvenilia for a while. It's kind of kind of similar to there's a Radiotopia show called Mortified where people go and like read out of their childhood journals. And I'd been thinking for a while like, oh, hey, wouldn't it be cool if this show existed? And in uh, January of 2019, I just said, there's no way to like will this show into existence from other people, but I can make this show myself. Uh, and so that's where the conversation started, and that's how it pretty quickly became the show that you're listening to today. Between the initial conception of the idea and actually starting to put things together and get podcast hosting and uh, commission artwork and stuff, it was probably about the span of a week. Nina Niskanen asks, what is your own favorite trunk story? And this one I had to go digging back through my uh, folder full of uh, retired stories, and it pretty quickly jumped out at me. There's a story that I wrote never really intending to sell it, so I don't know if it really counts as being trunked, but that I wrote for my wife for our first wedding anniversary, and I ran it through revisions with my writing group and pretty quickly produced a draft I was happy with and then printed it out and bound it up into a little book uh, and gave it to my wife for our anniversary because first anniversary is traditionally the paper anniversary, and uh, that was that was my idea. Uh, Joe Lazinski, again, asks, do you have a favorite type of trunk story? And my first instinct, which is probably cheating, is to say all of them. But since that's cheating and I should give a real answer, I'll say that my favorite type of stories are the ones that are from early in my guests' careers, uh, because it can show listeners, you know, here is where this author who you really love started out. Like, here is something that they wrote back 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago sometimes. And, you know, really, like, show you, like, oh, yeah. Like, they were a beginner once, too. So I really, I like having those sorts of early stories, but... You know, I've had such a range of stories on the show, and it would be, you know, really hard for me to pick just one. When I talk to guests before they come on the show about 
Uh, sometimes they'll ask, like, what sort of story do you want me to bring on? And my answer is, you know, something that you're comfortable reading on the show, something that you're comfortable attaching your name to still. And most of all, like, something that you really think represents something good about your trunk. This next question comes from Diane, who asks where do my stories come from and do I have any rituals that open me to inspiration? You know, I think that like every author gets this question at some point, like where do you get your ideas? And, you know, a lot of times for me, it's the random article button on Wikipedia. A lot of the ideas that I've had for stories that I've written have been, in some way influenced, maybe not from the random article button on Wikipedia, but from endless Wikipedia diving and just following links and reading and reading and reading, that just details will spring off for me and I'll say like, oh, I want to I wanna do that, I want to write that thing. And a, a lot of it is just like, there are themes that are important to me and that I want to explore. And so a lot of my ideas come from, in some ways, like trying to rehash those themes and other times just like a specific thing about nuclear disarmament or about whatever it is, that there will be some thing in my interests that is like, oh, this would be an interesting hook for a story or this would be this would make an interesting character, you know, maybe immediately or maybe some weeks or months or years down the line, I'll actually figure out what I want to do with that. Um, and sometimes it's, sometimes it takes writing the story to figure out what I want to do with it. And then I'll go back and rewrite from a different per point of view or from uh, the same sort of story, but told by a different character or something else. As far as, like, rituals that open me to inspiration, there's... I, I would say that I don't close myself to inspiration ever, more so than that I specifically go through and open myself to things. I am always reading Wikipedia, reading just random clickbait articles, Atlas Obscura, all this stuff, and just, like, accumulating ideas in my head, and, you know, a lot of them just end up in a text document in my hard drive called Ideas, and I, I have ideas that are 15 years old in there, and I have ideas that are, you know, from earlier this year, and it's just, you know, whatever, whatever comes up. Diane also asked, do you usually have an idea of how the whole story will fit together before you start writing? Uh, do you plan out plot twists in advance and or do the ideas come as you're writing? Uh, and I kind of take this as like the false dichotomy of plotter versus pantser or, or outliner versus pantser. If you'd asked me 10 years ago, I probably would have said that I'm a straight up pantser. I just you know, I fly by the seat of my pants, I have an idea, and 
I just sort of discovery write until I finish. And one of the things that I've learned from trunking a lot of stories doing that is that discovery writing gets me a draft, but it doesn't necessarily get me a story. And what I mean by that is if I'm just straight up discovery writing, things happen, lots of things happen, and there isn't necessarily an arc to them. There isn't a cohesive beginning, middle, and end uh, sort of structure. Whereas if I outline things, I still don't always end up with like a satisfying plot. There's a lot of things I have in my trunk that prove that. But if I outline things, I have a better chance of getting a story and finishing a story. One of the things I found when I was just a straight-up discovery writer for years was that I would run out of steam because I would hit the hard part and not know what was going to happen next and couldn't discovery write my way out of that. Uh, And when I started learning how to outline, and I I really started to learn how to outline by taking Mary Robinette Kowal's short story intensive class and doing that taught me how to outline and really cemented for me the idea that the pantser versus plotter, pantser versus outliner dichotomy is a false one because people who are outlining are still sort of, in my experience, flying by the seat of their pants It's just that they're doing that flying by the seat of their pants at the outlining stage as opposed to when they're actually sitting down and writing the manuscript. And even, I'll I'll speak for myself only, even when I have outlined a story, I will still be discovery writing my whole way through it because even if I have plot points mapped out for myself, I still have to figure out what actually happens in between them. So I think that's something really important to know and really important to to think about is like, you don't have to be one or the other. And, you know, you don't have to be the same thing for the whole time. And they're really related anyway. Like you can discovery write an outline. Valerie asks... Uh, What are some approaches you use when revising a story? Do you do multiple passes that focus on specific elements, or make notes as you go and tackle them in order, or some other method? The first thing I do when I revise a story is I let it sit. You know, this is something I've been doing since I started writing, pretty much, was like, just let it cool off for a bit, because when I'm super excited about a story... I will very easily overlook its flaws. But on the flip side, I don't want to let it sit too long because if it sits for too long, then the suck fairy starts to creep in and I'm like, oh, this is, I don't like any of this and why do I want to revise it anyway? So generally I will, you know, let us let a story sit for a little while and then just read through it and see what jumps out at me immediately. And a lot of times I've sort of tried to train myself out of editing as I go for the most part because 
it gets really sticky for me. So my first read-through thing will always be a certain amount of just, like, tidying things up and getting getting the draft in a shape that I want to show to my beta readers. As far as when I get down to revising a story, a lot of the time the problems that I have with a uh, story are in the the plot mechanics uh, that I will have things in an unsatisfying order or I'll have, you know, like reactions that don't make sense or whatever. You know, those get highlighted for me by my beta readers and then I will, you know, if it's a, a structural problem, I'll just sort of go back and look. If I have an outline, I will go back and look at the outline as compared to what I wrote and reorder sections. If I don't have an outline, I might actually outline the story then as it is written. And doing that might help me figure out what's broken immediately. Uh, it might not. If it's a language thing, I still do a lot of my editing by hand on a hard copy. So I will take a printout of my story and sit down with a pen and read through the whole thing and do my copy editing pass, get like grammar and stuff as much as I can, get punctuation stuff, whatever. But more than that, just like you know, finding the passages that don't work, finding the passages that need to be reworked, finding passages where I need to add things in, and writing those in, in the margins, on, you know, sometimes I have to, like, flip the page over and keep writing on the other side if I've used up the margins utterly, that sort of thing. And then sit down with that printout and open up a... Uh, make a new version of my draft uh, next sequential number and enter those changes in and enter those changes in usually starting from the end and going backwards. Uh, and the reason I do that is because if you start at the beginning and move forwards through the draft, it's a lot harder to find just visually on the page, find where you need to make the changes. Uh, if you start at the end, anytime you add things or subtract things, it's only moving around the stuff that you've already touched. Uh, whereas if you start at the beginning, and this is, this is specifically for me for working off of a hard copy draft, if I start at the beginning, by the second or third page usually, things have reordered so much or uh, moved around so much that it's a lot easier for me to miss a section without having to go in and uh, do a control F to find what I'm looking for to fix it. Uh, so that's what I do there. And then the final edit, and this is something I've learned to do a lot better since I started recording this podcast, especially is read the thing out loud. This is something that, like, I was being told to do in college, and I ignored it sometimes because it was effort and because I didn't like the sound of my own voice and I felt awkward about, like, reading things out loud. Uh, but 
podcaster now can't really get away from the sound of my own voice, so uh, it's a lot easier for me to do that, and that really... I write terrible sentences sometimes. We all write terrible sentences sometimes, and if you don't read it out loud, you don't find that. Even if you've looked through your draft and, you know, mercilessly cut repeated words or whatever, you might still find, oh, this... I actually used, like, wield eight times this page. Like, that's a lot, and not necessarily do I need a synonym, but, like, what is what is the purpose of this right now? Um, and so actually reading things aloud is uh, a big way that I tighten things up at this point. Uh, Sarah Locke asks, what's the most underrated book you've read this year? I read slowly. Uh, for this year, for my Goodreads reading challenge, I set myself the challenge to read 20 books, uh, which, you know, I didn't know what 2020 was going to bring. I had set a challenge of reading 10 books last year because that felt like it was doable. And then I read a lot of graphic novels at the beginning of the year, and so I'm I'm at 17 completed books out of 20 at the start of September. So much of what I've read this year, I think, has been super hyped up. Uh, it's been stuff that's been, like, really, you know, there's been a lot of buzz about it. I read Gideon the Ninth and Harrow the Ninth this year. I read Sarah Gailey's Upright Women Wanted. And, you know, all of, all of these books that have that got, like, super buzz. So I'm gonna give a kind of a cop-out answer and say that the most underrated book I read this year is after finishing the final season of uh, Netflix's She-Ra reboot, I read probably a novel's worth of fanfiction uh, by a number of different authors, and... A lot of the stuff I read had, you know, a lot of kudos, a lot of bookmarks, whatever, but fanfiction is underrated, uh, and that's something that it took me until... It took me watching the final season of She-Ra to really appreciate how good fanfiction is, because I didn't want to let go of the world, and I wanted to have more stories in that world, and because the series was over, yes, I could go back and rewatch it, and I did, but more than that, I was going to go and find fan fiction and get 18 different takes on what happens after the end of the series, and that's not limited to the She-Ra fandom, that's not limited to any fandom, that is, that's what fanfiction is for. People don't think highly of it because it is associated with femme-presenting people, and especially with teenage girls, and it's very easy to just pick on things that teenage girls like, uh, and it's lazy to do that. So, uh, the most underrated book I read this year Fanfiction. Go read some fanfiction. It's good for you. Uh, Dave Ring 
asks, is there some high concept that you love but haven't managed to write yet? And this was another one where I had to look through, in this case, I had to look through my ideas folder, and I stumbled across something that I've I've touched on once in my writing. I wrote a, a poem, actually, about this concept, but it wasn't ever... It didn't really do the thing I wanted it to do, and I didn't really know how to revise it, and so I just sort of tucked it away and haven't looked at it in the last year or two, however long since I wrote that. Uh, but I read a story about, I think, maybe Sydney, Australia, or Melbourne, somewhere in Australia, that the city gave email addresses to all of its trees, all of the city trees, so that uh, with the idea that residents could, you know, oh, the sycamore down the block from me, like, has a, a sagging branch that's coming down into the roadway, I can email this tree's email address and say, like, hey, this, you know, this this branch is restricting the roadway or is coming close to power lines or whatever. That was the idea that planners had. But what ended up happening was that people were writing, like, sweet notes to their trees to be like, you know, I really appreciate the shade you provide, or you're the best tree to sit under and read a book, or, you know, I fell in love under you, or or whatever it is. Um, and I just found that really sweet. And I tend to write a lot about technology because I think a lot about technology because I work in technology. And um, working in technology, I sort of, I'm exposed to like, you know, the the ideas of disrupting things and whatever, but I tend to think about it in terms of like, what cool things can we do with technology that aren't necessarily going to get turned into, you know, terrible cyberpunk futures, but instead like the human side of it. Uh, and so this idea really stuck with me, but it's just something I haven't been able to do anything with. And if it's something that you want to do something with, I encourage you to do that because the beautiful thing is I can write a story about it and you can write a story about it and we're going to write totally different stories. Like the the worst thing that happens is, you know, I try to sell the story I eventually write about this idea to FNSF or somewhere and, you know, Charlie sends me a very kind rejection and says, you know, weirdly enough, this is the second story about this exact same thing that I got this month and I already bought the other one. And then I can be like, ah, oh, one of my fans got that idea. Good on them. So, you know, like, it for me, it's a win-win. Like, if I do something good with the idea, that's great. If you do something with, good with the idea, I get to read it, and that's great. Amanda asked, What has been something you've found enjoyable about podcasting that you didn't know or think about before you started doing it? I I think I've said this on the show before, I've definitely said this on my Twitter stream, if not the show's Twitter stream, that podcasting is just amazing. Podcast, like, the act of podcasting. I love listening to podcasts, 
and you know i like endlessly refreshing the statistics page for the show and you know obsessing over numbers going up is i don't know if that's healthy or good but it's something i do and it's something that my brain is very good at but the actual production of the show uh the the hardest part of podcasting for me is sitting down to edit a show everything else about it i find to be extremely joyful that uh and i I hope this comes through when you're listening to the show that you can hear you know what i want the show to be is a couple of friends sitting around chatting and you know inviting you as the listener into this space of uh of friendship of just enjoying uh conversation and it really is like when i'm recording the show you know i'm thinking about like okay watching the time making sure that i keep like keep things flowing trying not to cross talk or like interrupt my guests all that sort of stuff and like you know making sure i get in my audio cues for like if there's a flub or something that i can easily pick it out in editing but like i finish every recording and i'm like oh my god that was so fun that was so great like and i'll i'll end up tweeting afterwards pretty regularly like oh my god podcasting is amazing and then and th- this is something that took a little getting used to because of the whole like listening to the sound of your own voice thing but afterwards when i'm actually once i've gotten my butt in the chair to edit the show actually editing the show is just re-experiencing that you know there's a certain amount of like oh i'm gonna have to listen to this section 18 times because there's just like a little bit of of some audio artifact that I don't want ran into something that I do want and like isolating that or losing the thread of what was being said and then making sure that I can make things sound cohesive and coherent. And that's mostly from my end. My my guests tend to be a lot better at keeping their mental trains on the tracks than I do when I'm talking. But just like you know, I know that I'm going to have to do serious editing. I'm going to have to, like, get things sounding tight because I don't want to waste your time. But at the same time, like, I will be editing a show and I will just be laughing out loud from something... Sometimes it's from something I said. More often it's from something that my guest said where... It's just like, you know, oh, this is this is why I love this. You know, so that that's the part I didn't expect. I did kind of expect, like, really appreciating the reaction that the show got. I was, you know, obviously, when I started, I was terrified that the show was going to get zero reaction. It's built slowly over the year and a half that I've been doing it at this point. But... It is, you know, it's it's really cool to hear people tell me what they enjoy about the show. And it's really cool to see people 
recommending the show online without me jumping in at all. Like sometimes I'm, you know, happy to jump into a conversation and be like, hey, I, I have a podcast about that, actually. Like, maybe you want to check that out. But, but like, you know, that that's self-promo. That's just something we all, when you are the brand, you kind of learn to do to some extent. But the experience of seeing, opening up my phone and seeing that somebody at mentioned the show on Twitter as like, hey, you should check this thing out without me saying anything uh, is super cool. But that part was something that I hoped for and expected. But what I didn't expect was how much fun just producing the show is. And I really think that if you're thinking about doing a podcast, especially right now where there's like nothing else to do, uh, except, you know, worry about the fall of democracy and and all that like absolutely you know try try making a podcast you know get your friends on just like have a conversation because it's really fun and it's really like i think that's a good energy that you want to bring into the world our final question is another one from rk duncan and i thought it was the best one to go out on, uh, which is, what's your completely unreasonable dream of runaway success for the project? I can have, like, semi-reasonable dreams of, like, we we just recently passed 2,000 downloads of the show late last month. That was super cool. Like, I guess my unreasonable dream, semi-unreasonable dream... It would be, like, super cool to see myself see the show on the Hugo ballot. You know, that's, like, I've, I've, that's always kind of been a dream. It hadn't always been in the podcasting realm, but just to be nominated, just to be on the finalist slate would be just incredible. You know, I am super pleased to see the shows that have been winning. I think that there are some amazing shows that have gotten on the ballot. I've been, you know, super excited to see for the last two years uh, Be the Serpent being on the final ballot for the Hugo Awards. But I think it would just, like, I would fall over if somebody told me, hey, actually, you're a Hugo finalist for this. Uh, that would be super cool. At this point, even seeing the show on, like, the extended nomination list, the long list, uh, would be super, super cool. Every year after the Hugos come out, they release a full voting breakdown uh, and a nomination breakdown. I know that for uh, the 2020 Hugo Awards, that the lowest number of nominating votes for a podcast was like 70 to get it on the long list and i think it would be super cool to you know to have 70 odd people who not only listen to the show enjoy the show but enjoy it enough that they want to put it on their list as representing you know the best in science fiction and fantasy fan casts 
that would be super cool um and it would be a, a huge huge honor for that to happen uh so you know what it's september now so it's probably about five months maybe until the nominations open for uh for discon for the Worldcon 2021 that's happening in Washington, D.C., hopefully next year. Washington, D.C. is hosting it. I don't know what the world will look like in the summer of 2021, but, you know, I I hope that we can all come together and see each other in person soon, sometime, uh, safely. I'm just saying, like, get a voting membership, put me on your ballot. I'd love that. Only dogs would be able to perceive the the high-pitched squeal that I would emit if somebody told me that I was nominated for Hugo. Uh, thank you to everybody who submitted questions. Again, that is Miri, Joe, D.H. Dunn, R.K. Duncan, Nina, Diane, Valerie, Sarah, Dave, and Amanda. Thank you all so much. I wouldn't have been able to do that this episode without you. Uh, I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate you tuning in and listening. Join us again in two weeks when our guest will be author Caitlin Starling. You should also go ahead and get yourself a copy of Caitlin's debut novella, Yellow Jessamine, which just came out from Neon Hemlock Press. So get a copy. Tales from the Trunk is mixed and produced in beautiful Oakland, California. Our theme music is Paper Wings by Ryan Boyd. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash trunkcast. All patrons of the show now get a logo button, along with show outtakes and other content that can't be found anywhere else. You can find the show on Twitter at trunkcast, and I tweet at HBBisniacs. If you like the show, consider taking a moment to rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. And remember, don't self-reject. <laughs> <laughs>